The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ruth. Uh, If you're unsure where to find that, Ruth is four short chapters uh, tucked in between the book of Judges and uh, 1 Samuel. It's towards the front of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, let us know. We'd be really thrilled to give you one. And as you're turning there, and and at at the risk of sounding like an old fuddy-duddy, I want to give you a nudge of pastoral encouragement right now, if I can. I believe, this is me personally, Okay, I believe the best case scenario is that each of you have a physical Bible in your hands when we study the scriptures together on Sundays. I already said I know I sound like a fuddy-duddy. Give me a minute, all right? Don't jump on me yet. Let me say this. This isn't a rule, and I'm not insisting on it. I'm just giving you my opinion, okay? Uh, I think Bible apps are cool, and they're helpful, and I'm not against them. However, there is value in you learning how to navigate the scriptures for yourself. And another key bonus is that a physical Bible is not going to be hitting you with alerts from 10 different apps while we are supposed to be focusing on God's Word together. Amen? Plus, there's another bonus. I'm going to sell this. I'm like that guy with the sticky tape that stops water, okay? I got something else for you to think about. Plus, if there's a massive solar flare Anytime soon that knocks out all our electronics, okay, at least you'll be able to turn to God's word to help calm the digital withdrawal systems uh, or uh, symptoms that many of us would be experiencing, right? Amen. And some of you are thinking, hold on, can that really happen? What is he talking about? Yes, it's called a coronal mass ejection, and it has some of the same effects on electronics as an electromagnetic pulse. And if some of you are trying really hard right now to not be bored because of all the science words, you remember how they knocked out the power in the casino in Ocean's Eleven? That's an EMP, okay? And the sun can do that uh, with the right conditions. So there you go. That's my pitch. (laughs) That's my pitch. I'm I'm mostly joking about the solar flare, but I'm not joking about my thoughts uh, on bringing uh, your Bible with you when we gather as the church. So... Just feel free to do with all of that what you will. Amen? Thanks for letting me do it. So as I said, we are beginning an eight-week feast in the book of Ruth today. So we're going to spend a little time to set the table. And by that, I mean we're going to take time to understand where we are as we read Ruth in the overall story of Scripture and, and the unfolding of God's perfect plan of redemption. So let's read together the first 13 verses of Ruth. And we're going to get to work. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives... The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, and she had heard in the 
in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters? Why should you go with me? I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Praise God for his word. So where are we as we read this account, as we begin to break into the book of Ruth? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning, God creates, it's Genesis 1. By Genesis 3, it doesn't take us long. We've disobeyed the one command he gave us. We've eaten of the one fruit of the tree that he said not to. That is commonly referred to as the fall. Falling, it's a reference to falling away from the relationship and the connection that we had to God. And so with the fall, with that separation, comes God laying out the consequences. But we see in Genesis 3, though there's consequences to that, God's already working a plan of redemption. Time goes on, it doesn't take long again for the corruption of sin to become so bad that what God does is floods the earth and keeps humanity going through one family. That's Noah's family. So they're on the ark, they come off the ark. Doesn't take long again, rebellion sets in the heart of mankind. The Tower of Babel, they decided they're going to build a big tower, show everyone how glorious they were, reach heaven themselves. That's never going to work. And so God confuses their language, and this begins a dispersion of peoples to different areas. From there, we are introduced to Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, a man that God called righteous because of faith, that God counted him as righteous simply because he trusted him. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of which whose name was Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was drugged into Egypt, made a slave, but God's favor was upon him. He found himself ultimately in a place of power and position, the only place of power and position that would end up leading to the salvation of his family as they had, were experiencing famine in their own land. So his family comes into Egypt. The, the leadership changes. There's a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph or care so much about what he did, and God's people were enslaved for 400 years. God then raises up a human deliverer in Moses, calls him to go in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Most of you, if you've been around scripture or church or Bible teaching, you, you know some of that story, but God sends a series of plagues to try to wake Pharaoh up. And there, it seems like maybe he's going he's, he's gonna to relent at different points, but uh, the last plague is the death of the firstborn of every person in Egypt. But the way God's people avoided that was by taking the blood of a lamb, a sacrifice lamb, and putting it over their doorpost. And that curse of death passed over them. We then see them leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness now, together as a people. 
doesn't take long. They're complaining and remembering the good food they had in Egypt or what they at least thought was good. They begin to grumble against God. That that whole drama lasts 40 years. There towards the beginning, God gives them his law. After that time in the wilderness, and because of that disobedience, lots of people didn't get to go, but God raises up another leader named Joshua. They cross the Jordan and begin the conquest, the land of Canaan. First on the list was Jericho, which is a pretty cool story if you haven't read it. That conquest happens, and again, doesn't take long for rebellion to set in. That brings us into the time of the judges, and that is the setting where we find the book of Ruth. The timeline continues beyond the judges to the time of the kings. There's Saul and David, Solomon. Things start going real sideways after him. The kingdom splits. More idolatry, more rebellion. There's the time of exile. The prophets, much of what we read in the prophets is speaking during this time. There's another 400 years of silence. And then we have the birth of Christ. And so um, I wanted you to kind of know where we are. Right, Because it's, it's very important. And some of you may be saying, if you've been around Love City for any amount of time, you may say, oh, man, I've heard you do that a lot of times, man. It seems like really often you're laying out that timeline like we've heard you do that. And, and dear friend, what I want you to know is uh, I, I don't want you to just be able to recognize that you've heard me do that. I want you to be able to do that. I want you to be able to lay out the timeline. I want you to know when you open your Bible where it is in the big story. Because it's so very important that we don't see the scriptures as a bunch of fragmented, separated stories. We need to see it as it is. It's a bunch of stories, yes, but they all make up one big story. It's part of the wonder and the beauty of the scriptures. It's part of why I trust that it is inspired by God. It's part of why I hope you trust that it is inspired by God. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, look, man, I'm not a pastor. Why do I need to be able to lay out the storyline of scripture like that? But dear friend, If you belong to Jesus, you're a disciple. And if you're a disciple, then inherent in that very word is the command to be a disciple maker. And so that means the assumption is, the hope is, that in your life, you're encountering people that have not yet understood the glory and the beauty of Christ, that he is worthy to be trusted and worshipped. And one of the most helpful things you'll be able to do for them is to show them how this all connects to be able to point them to the crimson thread of the gospel running from Genesis to Revelation so that they can see and also be in awe of the goodness and power, faithfulness of our God. Amen. Now, when it comes to the book of Ruth in particular, we are not sure who wrote the book. Some have suggested Samuel, but there are things in the book that that seem to point to it being written after his death. In any case... The writer does not say specifically here that the famine in Bethlehem is the result of Israel's disobedience during the time of the judges. That's, that's, you know, if you read the book of Judges, oftentimes people who, who criticize the scriptures, they'll, they'll look at, pull stuff out of Judges and say, man, look, how, look at this stuff the Bible's talking about. Look at, look at how crazy and wild this is. Look at... It's, it's just, it's unbelievable some of the things in accounts you'll read in Judges. And, and, and they'll, they'll point to that and say, man, how, how can you believe in a good God and read this stuff that happened in Judges? But part of the issue is not understanding the point of the book of Judges. The part of the point in the book of Judges is to show us how incredibly terrible we can get apart from God. 
It is scary and it is disgusting. It's terrible. But the Bible doesn't whitewash those things. It tells the truth. Amen. The, the, the writer here doesn't say that the famine in Bethlehem is the result of, of Israel's disobedience, but <clears throat> I just want to say it, it's possible that that's the case, and, and I, I just want to say it would be consistent, if that were the case, with God's good and loving character. It would be consistent with his good and loving character. Now, if you're paying attention at this moment, some, a, a red flag might have just shot up. You might say, hold on, wait a minute. Did he just say the famine was consistent with God's good and loving character? And what I want to say to you is absolutely, friends. That's absolutely what I'm saying. What, let me ask you this. What father who truly loves his children would spray them with a hose when they're already drowning? I don't think any good or loving father would do that. And what I want you to see as we open up this book and begin is that one of the mega themes of this book is God's sovereignty through the lens of eternity. God's sovereignty through the lens of eternity. And this is the only lens by which we can truly appreciate his love for us. You see, God made us for relationship with him. And when we are satisfied with the temporary trappings of this life, when we become satisfied with that and the many warnings he already gave us about that, it doesn't dissuade us, then it is sometimes necessary and loving to shake us from that stupor by removing the things that we have begun to worship. That is consistent with God's good and loving character because he has an eternal lens to be sure. This eternal lens, it allows our eyes to focus on the greatest good. It's the only thing that can keep us from despondency and distrust in God's character as we're navigating the difficulties of a world that is broken. An eternal lens works like a good set of binoculars in the desert. It allows you to see the destination where there is water and shade and blessing up ahead, which keeps you, it helps at least, keeps you from doubting the purpose of the steps you must take to get there. You understand what I'm saying? If, if all you're doing is looking with your eyes and you can't even see the destination where you're headed, you've got no idea. There's good things ahead and you're in the midst of a, of a dry, desolate place, a desert, and you're just walking and, and meandering. Man, it's easy to feel hopeless. It's easy to feel like there's no purpose in what you're doing. And to varying degrees and in different ways, this world will be a dry and desolate desert for all who traverse it. We, and I just want to say this. Hear me, it's important. This fact that for everybody, this world is going to be a desert, that's a mercy to us because we are all tempted to be satisfied in it when God has prepared a glorious oasis for us to inhabit. We are tempted to be satisfied with things we were never meant to be satisfied by. And this desert idea, this analogy, it's true for the rich and the poor, those who seem successful and those who look destitute. 
And our ability to accept that reality or not, it depends largely on whether we have the binoculars of God's truth or if we insist on surveying our situation with only our naked eye. It's going to come down to that. So let's begin to break this down. Let's look at these scriptures. Verses 2 through 5, they introduce us to some some of the people here, and they begin to set the stage for the events recorded in this book. So the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now that you, you see that Ephrathites, and if you're a Bible student, you've been reading other parts of the Old Testament, that kind of sounds like a tribal name, Ephrathites, right? Because you've got the Benjamites and you've got all the rest, right? It's not, and it's, it's important. It's going to become more important even later as we unpack this. The hardest part about preaching this book is, is not preaching the whole thing every time you touch it because, <laughs> because it's so good, man. And, and as, as it unfolds, it's like, oh, gosh, I don't want to. I, I don't, it's going to happen some, and I'm trying, but it's the, it, I'm not going to be able to stop. So anyways, Ephrath, so Ephrath, okay. So what is it? Why did they say that? Ephrathites, it's, it's not a tribal name. It's very important. I talked to Pastor Andrew about this, and he, he reminded me of this fact as well. As a matter of fact, because we, we know, if, if you know the story, you, you'll know that eventually Ruth is going to marry Boaz, and then that's going to be real important for the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, the Davidic line, and then Jesus coming. And so that means actually they had to be of the tribe of Judah in order for all that to be true. So they're not of a tribe of Ephrath. That's not a tribe. So what is that? Well, it's Simply, it's, it's just giving us a, a geographical marker. There's some, and I've I read lots of different credible sources. There's some that think Ephrath was an earlier name for Bethlehem. There's some that think a more accurate way to say it would be it's, Ephrath would kind of be like the county, Bethlehem being the city. At the end of the day, what's really important for you to know is it's, it's just marking geography. It's just telling you about the place. It has nothing to do with their tribal ancestry, okay? So that's important. All right, uh, now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Uh, interesting fact. And I saw it said enough by enough credible sources that I, I think it's probably true. Uh, Oprah's birth name was Orpah, and uh, it was misspelled by somebody on the birth certificate, because Orpah is kind of a weird-sounding name, to, to, especially to English ears, so... Uh, I'll, you know, I'll let you draw what conclusions you want to draw from that. Probably none, but anyways. Um, and they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Okay, so uh, interestingly, Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Those are pretty good, right? I like that. Malon means sickness, and Kilion means wasting away. Uh, the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but that leads me to assume that perhaps Elimelech and Naomi didn't have any close friends. Because I've got friends in my life that when Natalie became pregnant with either Lucy or Max, and they said, hey, what names are you thinking? And I said, well, I'm thinking sickness or dying. They probably would have offered me a baby naming book or, you know, some input. Like, there's enough relationship there. They'd be like, well, can we think about that a little longer? Because that's weird. But uh, it ended up, unfortunately for Malon and Kilion, being appropriate. Um, and so what, what is this telling us? It's telling us that they sojourned 
to escape the famine. Okay? But where did they go? That's real important. They went to Moab, where it's a place that had a people that hated God, okay, east of the Dead Sea, of where they were. But in that time, they had more temporary comfort. And that's where they went. That's significant. It's significant uh, for this story as it unfolds, but I think it's, it opens up an idea and a principle. It's something that I'm seeing in a different way often today. Not so much, we, we don't, especially here in the West, we don't struggle with physical famine very often, but there are those that, that feel a spiritual famine. There are those that feel broken and despondent and oftentimes hopeless, and it ends them up on their own kind of sojourning and journey. Uh, you'll, you'll hear language a lot if you are paying attention, if you spend any time online. Uh, you'll hear a lot of people talking about deconstruction stories. And oftentimes what that means, it's somebody that has often, I'm not saying this is always the case, but oftentimes they've encountered some kind of difficulty, some kind of either crisis of faith or difficulty in, in their life that they're having a hard time squaring with a good and loving God. And it leads them on a journey that's the nomenclature generally just been now described as deconstruction. And, and that leads to all different kinds of things. It can lead to sometimes an agnosticism, which is basically saying, well, I believe there's something maybe out there, probably, but I don't know what. Or atheism, which is just saying, I think the natural world's all we got. That's it. There is no eternity. There is no, there's no spirit world realm. There's nothing besides what we can touch, taste, see, feel. Um, it, sometimes it doesn't go that far, though. Sometimes there's, there's a, and I'm seeing a lot of this as part of why I'm bringing it up. There's a, there's a place shorter of a kind of a hard agnosticism or atheism. And it, it, I, I'm not even sure what to call it other than kind of a vague sense of spirituality. Uh, there's a lot of language, and I'm seeing a big uptick in this. And, and so I, I want us to talk about it and think through that and understand uh, People in our time aren't the first ones that have felt the need to sojourn away from God and what he has provided in order to try to find something better. We're not the first. This has always been going on. This has been a temptation the enemy has used to draw people away from the God that loves them since the beginning. But I've seen a lot of language currently around this idea of manifesting. Has anybody else seen that? Am I the only one paying attention? Probably you have, okay? But I guess raising your hand in a big group is scary or nobody else uh, has been on the internet in the last year. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> this idea of manifesting, and it ties into kind of new age spirituality. It seems like oftentimes integrated in this is the, is the, uh, the use of crystals and different talks of different energy and, and all of that. And this idea of manifesting, it's real interesting because the idea is that basically positive vibes, positive thoughts, you can, you can, you have the power to kind of draw into your life or into your surroundings what it is you're positively thinking about, uh, which is not that far off from uh, a unfortunate offshoot of Christian doctrine called the Word of Faith movement, where they think that 
Basically the same thing, they'll just use more God language around it. Not that God is sovereign and in control, but that I can be trusted uh, with laying out the roadmap of my life. I can be trusted with knowing what is good for me at this moment. And so if I, if I exert enough, I'm, I'm really trying to not be um, condescending here, but it's like positive vibe power, I don't know how else to say it. I can manifest, and some of them, you know, some folks, it's, if I have these certain types of crystals, I can also, you know, it's, it's problematic. It's, it's a departure from what God has already provided, which is the, the safe place is to understand what we're going to see Naomi end up understanding, which is that God can be trusted with laying out the plan for my life. God is the only one that can be trusted with knowing what I actually need right at this moment. And if I'm convinced that I know better than him what would be good for me right now, I'm in great error and even greater danger. Amen. And so what does this lead to? It leads to, and I'm, I'm going to tie back into this desert analogy. It could be because I spent a bunch of time in the desert this week and it's on my mind. I don't know. But it seems appropriate either way. Uh, it, it, it can lead to, so if you're thinking again about that desert analogy and that, that this world is much like crossing one, it can lead to this kind of idea of, well, okay, well, if I, if I don't have the binoculars to see that end purpose, that end goal that God has for me, then... I'm just going to strike out in a totally different direction. And so the, the, what God has prepared for you is off this way. I, I can't see anything. All I know is that what I'm experiencing doesn't feel good. I'm really struggling. And so I'm, I'm going this way. Okay? That's a serious problem. And, and let me say this about our attitude towards these things. Because it's people who God loves getting their feet ensnared in this stuff. Okay, so how do we think about this? I think one thing that we need to say is that the church needs to accept some responsibility for the reality that people find themselves here. Because there has been times and there's been places where the gospel has not been front and center. The hope of what Christ actually does have for us has not been the focus. Instead, it's been legalism and it's been beating people to death with a set of rules that either they think they've found in the scriptures or they've made up themselves and they lay heavy burdens on people that they were never meant to carry. Pastor Jordan led us this morning in a prayer in the beginning talking about the, the truth that what Christ said is, all who are weary come to me and I'll give you rest. My burden is easy. It's not heavy. And why is it easy and why is it not heavy? Well, because we're yoked up with him and he carries it. Praise God. Amen. But it's not just legalism that has pushed people, because legalism is hopeless, man. If, if you're teaching people that, look, keep the rules in order to get God to love you. Keep the rules, and then God will keep loving you. Man, you're setting people up for failure. You're setting them up for hopelessness, or you're setting them up for delusion that they are keeping the rules. In any way, or in either case, you're dragging them away from the very thing, the very oasis God actually has prepared for us, which is rest in Him, trust in Him. Sometimes it's been legalism. Sometimes it's been scandal. Sometimes it's been, and, and we could get into a debate about whether the church actually needs to accept any responsibility for this because maybe it's charlatans that are doing that that never really belong to Jesus anyways. But I don't think that's the, the total sum of it. I think there are times when uh, because true believers don't use wisdom in 
accountability and, and, have, and, and the way they conduct themselves, they open up gaps in their life. And I believe there's been many times where those who truly started out wanting to follow Christ ended up living and acting like wolves and causing damage to people. And there's many that end up on this path of, of deconstruction that I'm talking about because they've been harmed by those who were supposed to love and protect them. Shepherds are supposed to keep wolves away. Shepherds are supposed to take the staff and knock the slobber out of wolves' mouths. That's what shepherds are supposed to do, but oftentimes they've turned that staff on the sheep. And I pray God's mercy upon their souls, and I genuinely mean that. That they would repent and run to him and acknowledge their sin, because I don't think the Father takes that lightly. Sometimes what this means is not just, I, I don't have those binoculars that allows me to see the end goal, and so I'm just going to strike off this way. Sometimes what it also means is, I'm, I'm not going to follow the imprints and the sand of those that have gone before me. It breeds a distrust, right? Lots of people have walked this path. Lots of people have gone through this desert. There's, there would be a somewhat of a trail, but there are things that happen that end up sowing distrust into people's hearts. And then they, they don't feel that it's safe for them to follow that trail. They're afraid around the bend there's going to be another group of robbers jumping on them. And we need to accept responsibility for that. And all of this, what I'm trying to cultivate in us is a compassion for those who are stuck in this stuff. The position we take is not to get online and, and, and try to beat people up with facts and figures and, and, and try to make them feel stupid for where they're at. Our hearts should be full of compassion for them. We should love them. And be good to them. And speak hope and life where there's doors of opportunity. Because here's the truth. Here's what we need to realize. There are some that may sojourn into these things, these aberrations. They may sojourn into them and, and they may return. They may go off to the left or to the right and they may, they may end up coming back to the path, praise God. But there's also this reality. Some of them may die in their sojourning like Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. And that should break our hearts. And we should know that part of why God has placed us here as his people, filled us with the power of his spirit, is not just for us to get together, have happy, clappy church, and feel good about ourselves, but to get in the way of people running headlong towards destruction. I don't care if i got to lay down in front of them and the way I stop them is for them to stomp on me. That's fine. Just Stop. Just return to the only place you're really going to find what you're looking for, which is the path that God has laid out and provides for us. And the other thing we see as a result of Elimelech and Naomi's choice to go and sojourn in Moab, a people that, that hated God's people, that hated the God of the Scriptures. Part of the reality we see play out there is that Oftentimes, God will allow more struggle and suffering in our life when we try to avoid the refining and blessing that comes from persevering through them. Did you hear that? Because it's real important. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes God will allow more suffering and struggle into our life if we try to circumvent, if we try to avoid the blessing that comes from persevering through them. The Bible has a lot to say about our approach to suffering and difficulty. And it's, it's not just even that he can, which he can, turn those difficult, hard things around for our good and his glory. It's that 
God specifically even uses those things to shape us, I believe, in ways sometimes that we couldn't have otherwise been shaped. There's value and there's beauty and there's purpose in the process of persevering through difficulty. To the degree that we believe that is going to have a lot to do with how susceptible we are to the temptation to distrust God. We have to remember, friends, that true freedom is not doing whatever you want. It's doing what you were made to do. To the degree that you believe that is going to have a great deal of weight on how you end up seeing God and seeing the events of your life. God knows what true freedom is because he made you. And he has promised that he will always be guiding you towards true freedom and the greatest good. You see, we need those binoculars. We need those, that eternal lens because when our eyes get so focused on just the immediate surroundings, we oftentimes end up walking in circles. And you walk in circles in a desert for very long, you're going to lay down and it's not going to go good. Amen. I think it was G.K. Chesterton. If this is wrong, just give me a pass, but I'm pretty sure that's who it was. He, he said that before we tear down a fence, we should always check why it was put up to begin with. Does that make sense? You walk up, I don't like this fence. I don't like this fence stopping me from getting over there. And you and all your might and power and wisdom, you start kicking that thing and you knock it down and you find out on the other side of the fence is a dog's about to chew your leg off. Whoops. That's how a lot of us live. That's how a lot of people end up. It's tragic. Verses 6 and 7, they're really interesting, especially when you consider the summary statement of verse 13. The, the summary statement of verse 13 is this, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So we see where Naomi's mind is at right now. This is, this is what she thinks is happening. For the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And, and that's why 6 and 7 to me are, are even more interesting. Can we read those together again? Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Why am I saying that's so interesting? Because here's the question I want us to think about. Even though her understanding at this point was that God's hand was against her, right? That's her summary statement. She's trying to convince Orpah and Ruth, look, man, you don't want to go with me. You don't want to be with me. It's almost this idea that she feels like she's cursed of the Lord. The hand of the Lord is against me. That's where she's at mentally. The question is, even with that being what she thinks, where did she turn? She turned back to the land of her people and to the land of her God. Even believing the hand of the Lord is against me, she still turned that way. She believed that all she was experiencing was God being against her, but as we will see, really he was for her all along. And what this shows us, friends, I think what this should peel back in our own hearts is, is a reality to think through, that, that suffering and difficulty 
is perhaps the best revealer of what you truly believe about God. And here's what I want you to ask yourself if you're being honest. Do you tend to turn your face towards him or against him when you are suffering or struggling? What, what, is, the, what is the instinct? And, and some of the instinct, especially when you first become a believer, it, it's just that. It's just, it's just instinct. But the longer we walk with Jesus, the longer we fill ourselves with the truth of his word, the hope is that that instinct changes, that when the sting and the difficulty, the heat, the pressure of trouble and suffering difficulty when it when it hits us that that the first pivot is not away from God in anger towards him believing that he's trying to hurt me but knowing that the only shot I got is is a turn towards him which way does your face turn when things get hard I want you to ask yourself that think about it and I don't want you to beat yourself up about it if the obvious right answer is not the one that comes up in your heart I want you to ask God for strength and grace and to continue to grow in the knowledge of him, that that instinct would change. Lord, change that instinct in me is the prayer that I'm encouraging you towards. If, if your honest answer is that difficulty comes, I'm, I'm, I'm quickly in a place of kind of woe is me and why is God against me? And if he's going to be against me, well then, I mean, can't, can't you imagine easily Naomi going the other way? Look at all God has taken from me. Look at his hand being against me. There's no way I'm returning to Judah. There's no way I'm returning to the place that he's called me to be. There's no, place, no way I'm going to go back and, and be scorned by those that will be judging me when I get back. I'll stay right here and I'll die if that's what it means. Could, couldn't you see that being there? Very easily could have been her response. Praise God that it wasn't. And for what it teaches us. Verses 8 through 13, they get a little weird, okay, at least to our modern ears. But let me, let's just read it again so it's fresh in our minds. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She believes the hand of the Lord is against her and yet still is hoping for God's goodness and mercy towards these daughter-in-laws of hers. And, and her mind and her heart is, and her affection is towards them. She's not so absorbed with her own struggling that she can't see the dif how this difficulty is touching and affecting other people. Woo, that's a good word that we weren't going to get into today. Just stick that on the shelf, think about it later, okay? <laughs> I can't get into that now. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. We're okay so far. This is where it starts to get weird. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? What? Okay, that's a weird thing to say. Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Also a weird thing to say. Okay, Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Why is Naomi being so weird right now? Okay, Here's why. Because there's a provision in the law of God to care for widows. Okay, And so this provision was that if a, if a husband was to die, 
then his brother, or and it could keep moving based on closest relative in line, could marry her, care for his family, his children. Also, the family name in, in Israel at this time was, was tied to land, okay? And so that was a big factor here. And, and without a, a male heir, uh, basically Naomi could do nothing with the land. She was stuck. She was in a really bad spot. And, but that, that's why this provision was there that someone else could uh, marry her. And so in the case of Ruth and Orpah, Basically, Naomi's talking about that because in her mind, that, that, that's what came up, is that provision. So that if, if she would have had two more sons besides Malon and Kilion that were close in age, the most reasonable thing in her mind as an Israelite would be for those brothers to marry Ruth and Orpah. That's why she's saying, look, even if, even if I got married tonight, even if I snagged me a husband tonight and started the process, are you guys going to wait around? No, <laughs> right? Um. So that's, that's, we just have to understand the, the context there. So, um, and, and some of you may be hearing that. I, I anticipate this is possible. You may be hearing that. You may be hearing this provision within God's law that uh, one of the brothers or close relatives, and, and this is going to come into play with Boaz as we move down uh, the line here. You may be thinking, man, that's, ooh, that's part of that stuff that I just don't like about the Bible. It's, it's patriarchal. It sounds very chauvinist. Why, why can't... Why can't these women just be strong, independent women on their own? Why is there this their assumption that they're, in order to not be destitute and, and poor and struggle is that they're going to need some husband to come and, and save them? That, that's, that's part of what people are talking about when they, they rail against the Scriptures as being this, this, uh, this, this book and, and, and these principles that, that hold women down. And, and I, I don't have time right now to lay out all the reasons why that belief about what the Scriptures do is untrue. Because I, I just really can't do it. But there's a, there's a couple of things I just want you to consider. First of all, and maybe most obviously, is the name of this book. Okay? The name of this book is Ruth. It very, if, if God was as, as, as chauvinist, woman-hating as, as sometimes people accuse him of being, this book could have easily been named Boaz. This could be the book of Boaz, easily. He's the kinsman redeemer that pops up at the end, and we're going to get deeper than this, but it looks like he saves the day. We could be reading the book of Boaz right now, but we're not reading the book of Ruth. Okay? A. B. Friends, I need you to try to stretch for just a minute with your imagination and understand the difference of what it would have been like to live in this time. We live in a Western context of relative stability and peace. I know we still have wars, but our wars are even different. If you got a war now, you got nerds that were good at video games sitting in trailers, you know, pushing buttons at each other, largely, right? Like, back then, there was a constant threat of war with swords all the time. That's a totally different thing. Cities were walled at this time for a reason. It was wild. <laughs> okay, there was a lot of danger all the time. Agriculture was the primary way, especially in Bethlehem, that people were making a living. Very hard back-breaking work. There's constant threat of war. This, things were different then. Okay, do, do I think what the Scriptures teach is that now, if God believes... Hello, that a woman believes 
that God has called her to serve him in singleness, that, that that's a, a bad option. No, it's a great option. Paul makes that clear. He spells it out for us in the book of Corinthians, okay? So just, <clears throat> if look, if, if this is something you struggle with, I'm just going to ask you to, to try to do this. If, if you really do struggle with this idea that the, the, the Bible is real patriarchal and it's, it's, it's about holding women down, I promise you we could have a much longer conversation around why that's clearly not the case. But if, if, if you don't have a chance to get to that soon, then just whenever you read something in the scriptures that is like, wow, that's weird, right? Like Naomi talking about, you want to wait around 20 years if I can you know, crank some suns out for you real quick? You're like, what? Just, <laughs> just realize you're, you're reading this from a totally different cultural context in a totally different time. Just here's a great principle for Bible reading, especially when you're traipsing around in the Old Testament, which I encourage you to do. Just stay on God's side. Remember what you've seen about God's goodness and character in Christ. Let that be your starting point. And if you hit something you don't understand or strikes you really weird, you're like, man, I don't, whew, I don't know if I like that. Remember Christ. Remember what we know about God. Christ is the clearest expression, Scripture says, of God's character and who he is. Okay? And, and you can read that backwards into this difficult stuff, and that's part of what will help you interpret it. And it may take even more work of understanding cultural specifics and things of the time and all of that, but just because of Jesus, can we just stay on God's side is my question. I, th- I think we should be able to. I hope that you can. Amen. Okay. Now, as, as we get to the end of this, and as 8 through 13, we, we, we really get a view into Naomi's heart. We get a view into what she's feeling, thinking. You know, there's a lot of selflessness even in the midst of this, this tragedy. These, these girls are saying, no, we'll go with you. I mean, even the journey from Moab back to Judah is in her saying, no, you guys go back to your mother's house. I can't do anything for you. I'm in real bad shape here. Even that, there's, there's a lot of beauty in that. And I just want you to see that even though we stopped 1 through 13, I mean, most of the time when you're preaching a sermon, you know, you want to, if there's hard stuff, you want to read that, but you want to at least get to the point where it starts to get happy a little bit so we can pull the nose up on it as I send you off to lunch, right? But this ends with, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Period, right? But I want to, I want to encourage you that because... We are gospel people with eternal lenses. We have learned how even as far as we get is the tragedy of the thing. We haven't even begun to unpack the beauty of what God's about to do here, and there is a lot. We can already begin to see glimpses like, like sun. You know, sometimes as, as a storm is coming to the end, you'll begin, be, begin to see like rays of sun through, through those black clouds. Man, it looks really cool. That's part, you can already kind of see that here. And you may be asking how. Well, here's how. It was... It was only through this great loss of her husband and then her sons that Naomi turned her face back to the land of her people and her God. If Elimelech, Melon, and Kilion had just continued on living, do you think that Naomi would have been headed back to Judah? It sure doesn't seem like it. They had begun to settle there. Her sons had taken wives of the land, right? It was only in the absolute desperation of the situation that she was humbled out of trying to save face or being concerned with being scorned upon her return. They left the land. That was, that was clearly not the choice that 
seemed most in line with what God had been commanding his people to do. Go to Moab, go to our enemies, go to the, go to the place where they hate us because they have some more food than we have. And so coming back to Judah, man, you could be real worried about what are people going to think? What are people going to say? How are they going to treat me? But you get to a certain level of desperation. You get to a certain level of struggle. You stop being so worried about stuff like that. I already pointed it out to you, but I just want you to see again. I'm talking about... I'm talking about gospel hope-filled glimpses, even though we didn't get past reading just the tragedy of this thing. Even in her desperation, she is concerned for the well-being of her daughters-in-law. As I said to you earlier, I can't think of a better way to say it. The, the weight and the, the, the difficulty of this great amount of tragedy didn't blind her to the fact that she wasn't the only one suffering. That there was others around her also experiencing difficulty. And she care, she's able to care for them in the midst of that. Oftentimes, I think we can feel justified in becoming very selfish and self-focused as a result of our despondency. When we get into really hard places, we think the command to first and foremost love others and to put others before ourselves, that that command now goes away because I'm having a really, really hard time. It doesn't. And as a matter of fact, God oftentimes wants to, at least in part, pull you up out of that really hard time through you continuing to be able to love and serve those around you. It's what you were made for. You weren't made to turn inward and get very hyper-focused upon your own frustration, difficulty, or dissatisfaction. Amen. I know that's kind of a hard word. I, I, I know that. But I love you, and it's the truth. So, there you go. Later in this book, uh, Naomi's friends will tell her that God... What God brings about in her life through Ruth is better than having seven sons. And, and, and here's what's interesting. These friends that tell Naomi that, they don't even know the half of it. <laughs> they couldn't yet, okay? We'll lay it all out. We're, it's real exciting. But this is the part where I have to go, whoop, nope, can't do it. Can't go there. All right. But I want to. I just want to preach it every week for eight weeks, man, because it's so awesome. I'm not, though. What I'm, what I'm saying is that through all of this, friends, I'm almost done. Through all of this, 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 I went easy on you, man. I didn't preach for a lot of weeks. Some of you are like, wow, is, he, is this really happening? Is he done already? Yes. You know, <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, it's about time. Anyways, through all of this that I just laid out to you, these glimpses of sun through the, the, the storm clouds, we get a glimpse of this absolutely vital principle. And this, this, we're ending with this. Only empty hands have room to be filled. Only empty hands have room to be filled. And this points us directly to the truth of the gospel because the point of the gospel, the point of the scriptures, the point of Christ coming and doing all that he did was never to get us to try to work to fill up our own hands with achievements and success and things that bring us joy and, and, then, and then come and present those full hands to him and say, look what a good job I did. Are you proud of me, Father? The point of the scriptures, the point of Jesus coming, all that he taught and did, it was all of it was to get us to come to this realization. All that stuff, I have to go like this. The only way I can come to God 
in a proper posture is with empty hands, knowing that what I really need, he has to pour in. This is the essence of the gospel. You can't come to God thinking your hands are full. You gotta come empty and let him give you what you really need, which is grace and mercy and hope with an eternal lens. And that is only possible because Christ did all those things. Christ's hands were full. He's the one that did it. And then he died in our place and he made a way. Are your hands full or empty today, friends? Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for these first 13 verses of the book of Ruth. Thank you uh, for all that you've shown us here as we've set the table for the entirety of this series. We thank you uh, for what you've already begun to cultivate in our hearts. Thank you for the hope that only you provide, the joy that only you provide, salvation, grace, and mercy that only you provide. Help us be a people who know our hands are empty. And if, if we're ones that have filled them with foolishness, may we, may we dump them out and approach you properly. Lord, help us to have that eternal lens that helps us to properly understand where we are now, what we're in the midst of now, what we're struggling through now. Lord, help us not be a people that will settle for something you never intended us to settle for. May we not be satisfied with something that was not what you intended for us to have. Thank you that the greatest good is you and you will often do what is necessary to remind us of that. Thank you, Lord, that this is the manifestation of your love in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we will never be disappointed if our trust is wholly and fully in you. We love you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.